Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, an audio series about video games and the video game industry as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. I'm Richard Moss and this is episode 26, The Nostalgia Box. I'm doing something a bit different with this episode. The Life and Times of Video Games is normally about history, about the past and the ways in which it shaped the present. And this story certainly does still contain and concern those things. But the story itself is centred in the here and the now. And as such, to fit that different emphasis, I'm mixing up the format just a bit. And just this once. If you've listened to my on hiatus other show, Ludophilia, you'll know roughly what to expect. If not, well, sit back and enjoy the ride. We'll get going right after this. Just stepping inside evokes memories of a bygone era. Memories you may have lived through, memories you may have absorbed from your parents or your siblings, or watching TV or YouTube, or from the games you played when you were a kid. Those games may not have been these games, but no matter. This is a place of collective memory, a place you go to remember interactive electronic entertainment both as it was and as it is memorialised. There are the things we all know, even if just by name or reputation, like the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Sony PlayStation, Pong. The things we might have read about and accepted as canon, oversimplified falsehoods as they so typically are, like Atari's role in the formation of the industry, or the great video game crash of 1983 when Atari fell apart or the two or three consoles from each generation that most people believe were the only consoles from that generation. And there are the things we've seen in Fever Dreams, the impossible imaginings that are somehow real, the Casio Loopy and its built-in sticker printing capabilities, the Chinese-only Nintendo IQ player, an officially licensed attempt to stem piracy through what was essentially a Nintendo 64 inside a gigantic controller. The Action Max video cassette system, and the bizarrely pyramidal Coleco Telstar Arcade, with its triangular cartridges and each of its triangular console faces that sport one of three different control schemes the steering wheel, a light gun, and a pair of dials. They're all here, all that and more, side by side, row by row, year by year, system by system, and card by card, and box by box, systematically arranged in a life-size timeline of video game console hardware. An industry of boxes boxed up neatly behind glass in a place that calls itself the Nostalgia Box. It's a museum of video games, a museum of dreams and memories, a museum that proudly displays the obscure besides the renowned. The forgotten besides the beloved, each celebrated as an artifact of gaming history, and often displayed with a well-researched, albeit brief, description, with a touch of trivia and context. And one fine afternoon at the end of February in this year that we'll never forget, I was there, remembering things I knew and things I'd just learned I didn't. It's an impressive collection, especially when you consider its relative newness. 
just five years on from its opening, the collection already includes over 100 unique consoles, ranging from the many Pong-based systems of the 1970s, and I mean many, through to the latest generation and everything in between. And most of it was cobbled together by one woman, the accountant turned entrepreneur and museum curator turned former nostalgia box owner, Jesse Yeo. Here's a short clip of Jesse talking about the museum to the WA Today online newspaper back in 2015. I, I guess people these days, they don't think a lot about things like, oh, how this is created or, you know, especially kids these days, or they're with, on their iPads, you know, playing games. I never think about uh, how it all started, who, who started it. Jesse created the Nostalgia Box, Australia's first permanent video game console museum. Tucked away in the inner city Perth suburb of Northbridge, a trendy area known for its vibrant nightlife, shopping, and hidden little eateries. And she did it largely by scouring eBay and local markets and buying up gear overseas. Sometimes during her travels, sometimes via her friends, and also by leaning on the generosity of the community, from the kind souls who donated their own games and consoles, so that these may be shared with and enjoyed by museum visitors. Jesse sold the business to a fellow named David last year, a few months before my late February visit, but I got to talk to one of her key recruits, a Dutch expat called Liz Groot, who handles much of the day-to-day operation of both the museum and its adjoining gift shop and free play area. Here's Liz talking about her reaction to the collection when she joined the team. Note that you may hear various people and one young child in particular screaming or talking in the background during this and several of the other interview clips I'll be sharing later. It was this much. I knew about like Atari, I knew about like Nintendo and Mattel and Intellivision and stuff like that, but none of the other, you know, really strange looking consoles and other stuff that we have in there. It was just insane to see all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and there's that amazing stuff like the um, the VHS console. Yeah, and the Action Max. <laughs> yeah. Also the Casio Lupi is one of my favorite ones that I discovered here, which was, you know, it was directed for girls, but it printed stickers for like a little sticker booklet. And I was just like, if I was a kid back then, I would have begged my parents to have something like that because it's just so cool in my eyes. Mm. It would still be cool, to be honest, if they brought it out nowadays, you know, with a built-in printer. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Yes. I'll bring my own stickers for a manga that I'm creating myself. This is freaking cool. Yeah, some people would be way into that. Yeah, yeah. There are still people who like to use the Game Boy printer and things from the nineties. I've got some cool plans for this place, using a Game Boy printer. (laughs) Like, wouldn't it be, like, the coolest token ever? Like, oh, I visited the Nostalgia Box. With a picture of myself, you know, from the Game Boy printer officially taken there. And it's like, it would be awesome. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, so speaking of which, how did you get involved in this place? So I migrated here myself two years ago. I came here for my partner who lives here in Australia and is Australian. And uh, he actually found a volunteer job here. For the school holidays, they needed people. And I have got a teaching degree, so I was like, why not? And it was a gaming museum, so how cool is that? Oh, yeah. When I took the volunteering job and when they hired me for that job, they uh, said that it may turn into an actual paid job. And I was like, you know, it's whatever, as long as I can spend my time here and, you know, be surrounded by video games and show kids how to do stuff. That would be really, really cool. So I started doing that about a year now, I think almost a year ago, 
Um, I officially started working here in uh, April last year. As impressive as the collection is at the Nostalgia Box, there's one big blind spot that's becoming increasingly apparent as the museum matures. You see, it's a museum of video games. But more specifically, it's a museum of video game consoles. Which means no computers. No computer games. Despite their significance to the history of the games industry and to their contributions to the evolution of console gaming. Their absence is in part a legacy of the museum's original owner, Jessie, this self-confessed Nintendo fangirl who left her job as an accountant to start the business in 2015. It was for her a place to recreate the memories she held so dear of playing console games when she was growing up. A place to share those memories with other adults and with kids whose gaming knowledge extends no further back than the iPhone and the Xbox 360. And such it has stayed, with this singular focus serving as both a blessing and a curse. A blessing in that it affords this small museum a near exhaustiveness in exhibiting the history of console and handheld video game hardware, as well as an easy sell-through to the nostalgic 20 and 30-somethings and games-loving kids that form most of the museum's business. But a curse in that it paints them into a corner forced to use a handful of information dump fucks that talk of the adjacent growth of computer gaming in a place that otherwise does so very well to illustrate the chaotic evolution of an industry through an exhibition of its material objects. Liz is painfully aware of this shortcoming, but in fairness, there's not much they can do about it. It, it makes things much more complicated. It'd be really cool if one day there could be some computer games here too. It would. Uh, we are expanding very soon. Um, so we might dabble a tiny bit into like DOS gaming and stuff like that and set up like an old 98 Windows 98 and maybe an old DOS and a Commodore 64. We do want to do something like that, but since we're so focused on console gaming alone, Mm. To bring PC gaming into the whole mix, you would need the size of like the WA Museum to properly display like everything behind actual video game history. Mm. So in the same sense, we're lucky that it's only you know console gaming, but um, it does feel like we're sometimes missing out on some information or some let's say holes in history on yeah. how things ended up the way they were. Both when I was there at the museum and months later when I revisited my photos from the trip. I found myself especially drawn to the boxes that the Nostalgia Box includes in its museum displays. The physical packaging, the cardboard eye candy that sat on retail shelves and beckoned shoppers to buy. Like the Magnavox Odyssey 200, dubbed America's most exciting home video game, complete with on-screen bar scoring indicators, and the APF TV Fun Model 442, and early TV game system I'd never heard of that I now know has a very nice wooden case. The Telstar Combat from Coleco, boasting its realistic battle sounds. Nintendo's Color TV Game 6, a six-mode Pong system from 1977. The Vectrex arcade system, with its promises of bringing real arcade play home. And so, so much more. It's fascinating stuff to look at. To see how not only the industrial design of the hardware, but also the graphic design of the packaging has evolved over time. To see a little of how these systems were positioned. To see what their big headline features were supposed to be. 
to see the colors and the typefaces and the language used to entice. We are very proud to have them in our collection. It's not easy to track them down. Sometimes uh, you have to buy them separately, like you first get a console and then you have to buy the box, which feels very silly, but you know, oh, let's pay like $100 for a cardboard box that nobody wanted, but you know, it looks awesome on your shelf and uh, it's also cool to see, you know, this is what it looked like when people walked into the shop and they saw this box. Would you be attracted to this kind of design and what do you think of current design boxes and stuff like that and see that comparison? This, again, is something that Liz says goes back to Jessie's vision for the place. She started collecting together with her brother. She had just, uh, you know, she really valued the memories that she had. And with, with that base, she basically started expanding and expanding. And she wanted to really, you know, show people and let them experience those memories as well. Like, even I am experiencing it from time to time while I'm working here, you know, like someone wants to play Mario Kart on this nest and I'm like, oh, this is the soundtrack from the menu. And it's just like, it blows my mind every time I hear it. Yeah. And it's just, it's so good. It's so, so incredible to work here. Yeah, the, the collection has been expanding. Basically everything here in the play area is donated to us. So people donate their childhood consoles or parents down donating their kids' consoles, sometimes without their knowledge <laughs> to us. <laughs> Others, you know, they moved away and they're like, oh, I can't take this stuff along, so I'll just give it to you guys and we'll have a good home. Yeah. People like the idea that it will continue to be used and, you know, uh, you might hear it in the background, you know, the kids enjoying Smash Bros. on the Nintendo 64 and things like that. And those were all donated to us. That's really awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Liz says that around 90% of the systems in their museum still work but they generally avoid running these in the play area unless they have duplicates. And to ensure that she can be a good curator, she likes to conduct background research on everything. Often that research just means reading Wikipedia and some online articles, but also it means sticking to that core principle of the nostalgia box as a place of collective memory. Everybody that comes here has a different story, has a different history and different memories attached to, to video games. And it's always super interesting to hear, you know, their experience with things. Other people, I've had people from South Africa visiting us uh, who were talking about their Famicom system. And I'm like, a Famicom is from Japan. And I was really confused. And they pointed at the actual Japanese edition that we had in our museum. And they're like, yeah, but it was called the uh, Golden China. So apparently, and this was research that I did like afterwards, it was a bootleg console that was never officially released because South Africa and both Russia never had Nintendo release an official console in their countries. So what they did is they stole the design <laughs> and the games and they just distributed it anyway. So, you know, and in Russia it was the Bendy Jr. And it looked like a Famicom, but in gray. And then, you know, there it was just called the Golden China video game or, you know, computer games, I think it was called. And they had exactly the same games as we had. They had Ice Climbers, Mario, Donkey Kong, all that stuff, which is all brought out there, but it was very not licensed. <laughs> Liz loves to tell people stories about the consoles in the collection, whether that's online through social media or in person through personal tours and conversations. They really enjoy hearing these kind of stories and, and obviously offer their own. And I, I love listening to all of these experiences. And I think also the fact that people get to tell these stories they are just happy to be able to share that with someone else even though it's a, a stranger that works in a museum <laughs> we'll continue with the story right after this short break
The life and times of video games takes a lot of work to produce. Between archival research, interviews, writing, editing, mixing, mastering, music, composition, and everything else, a typical episode takes me anywhere from 20 to 50 hours to create. And that makes it hard for me both to publish regular episodes and to keep this thing going long term. Because the show's only income stream at the moment is crowdfunding. And at the time of recording, I'm receiving around $125 a month through Patreon, plus occasional one-off donations through PayPal. So if you'd like to support me so that I can make more episodes and maybe even go full-time on the show one day, please tell other people about the show. And if you can afford it, send me a bit of money via paypal.me slash or patreon.com slash life and times of video games. Now let's get back to the show. When we left off, Liz had just told us about how she loves hearing stories from museum visitors of the games and consoles they grew up playing, and then sharing those with others. In my personal opinion, I feel like video games have a massive cultural impact on things. Mm. It's, 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 it's as much, much as art as like any painting in a museum, in my opinion. So the preservation and the re-experience of this kind of stuff is just so important in my eyes because it reacquaints people with these experiences they had as a child and they get to introduce it again to their children. I've had so many parents come in here and it's like, you sit down on this game because this is the one I used to play 20 years ago. And either kids hate it or they have a, a great time with it because their parents are just as invested as they are. Liz told me she's noticed that starting at around age 11 or 12, kids begin to pay attention to the difference in graphics between systems from different eras. And no matter what their age, they all seem to come at games with the sort of a purity that can only emerge from a total naivety about their context. They're just like, oh, it's, it's a great game. I really enjoy skateboards, so I play a skateboard game. Um, they don't know the names. Obviously, to us, it's like, that's insane. How do you not know who Tony Hawk is? Yeah. You know? <laughs> For them, it's just like, oh, it's cool skateboarding. It's awesome. You know, or they don't know the significance behind games like Halo or uh, the first Call of Duties or Crash Bandicoot or Mario. They do know Mario, obviously, but they don't know the impact these games have had on the games that are playing nowadays. And I'm always trying to kind of, you know, tell them the story behind these games and the difference that they've made. Yeah, because context, context makes things a lot more interesting, I think. So. Mm -hmm. Exactly. For kids to be able to play like these really early on uh, games, even things like Frogger or Pac-Man, and then to kind of realize like, wait a minute, I play something very similar on my mom's mobile phone. You know, like Frosty Road or uh, even Flappy Bird and things like that were very much inspired by games that we played, you know, 40 years ago on the arcade machines. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which... Which systems are the most popular with the people who come in? Depends on the generation, funny enough. Yeah. Uh, the younger kids really immediately go for the Super Nintendo, or sorry, the NES, Nintendo Entertainment System. They play original Mario Bros. and the arcade machines a lot. Um, older kids go for PlayStation and Xbox and the GameCube in the back. And then often parents tend to go for the Atari, Pong, Duck Hunt, and uh, Bubble Bubble on the Sega Master System. Most of the time, people, when it comes to, like, let's say, our age, like, let's say, 20s, 30s, um, PS2, Xbox, and Mega Drive, and PlayStation 1 are the most popular. So it's funny to see all these categories of people. 
from time to time we do also uh, arcade machine competitions and what we always do when someone sets a high score we want to know their age and it's always interesting we had a pac-man versus galaga uh competition going on for high scores and it was all 30 plus on galaga and it was all 10 plus on pac-man <laughs> So it was a really big age gap and it was interesting to see that it was the older generation that all wanted to try Galaga because they remember playing Galaga at fish and chip shops when they were doing stuff with their parents or back in the day when Galaga machines were just in random shops here and there. And then uh, the other kids don't really recognize Galaga, so they play Pac-Man instead. So it's interesting to see that big dissonance in age and games. The Nostalgia Box is, unsurprisingly, a big hit with kids. They hold birthday parties, sometimes with dozens of kids all crammed in, screaming and playing and being warned not to break anything. But Liz told me they also get a lot of tourists, both from overseas and interstate. And it's popular with some of the local adults too. People can basically use this place as their private venue for birthday parties or box parties. So often at night, you know, we get sometimes uh, 30 drunk guys and they're just all playing Mario Kart and it's awesome to watch them, you know. Uh, I remember my first day at work here, I had to host a party here. And it was someone's box party and they had a Mario Kart competition on a projector screen. So, you know, it was a drinking game Mario Party. So every time they had to finish a drink before they finished the race. So either people chugged it before the race started or they did it like along the way. But to see just the intensity in a race like that and, you know, these guys are like in their 30s. And to still see that like childlike, you know, competitiveness among all of them is just absolutely incredible. It was, it was really, really fun, especially for first work day. It was pretty crazy, but still it was very enjoyable. So uh, I guess you probably you know, can't really uh, say much because it's, it's not you're not you're not David and you're not Jesse. But uh, uh, is there anything you can tell me about like why the the change happened? Like why, why Jesse sold and, and oh, how David um, came it was to purely personal reasons. She recently got married and she just wanted to enjoy married life for a while. Um, she also felt that uh, she lost a little bit of passion mm. for this place. She started out obviously loving everything about it. And she still has a massive love for video games. But she just wants to play them now instead of seeing other people play them. Mm. And I totally, completely respect that. David uh, took this business because he thinks this is an incredible idea. Uh, we're the only ones in Australia that are doing this, so that's pretty cool. But yeah, he found it an incredible idea. He, he saw how this place could grow and change, and that's what we're going to be doing uh, next month. Liz then proceeded to tell me, with some measure of excitement, about how they were getting ready to move the Nostalgia Box to a bigger space right next door. So they'd have room to display more stuff in the museum, to expand the game area, to set up a bar for use with private events, and to hold more events. Uh, we've been doing more speed dating, things like that. So instead of, you know, the boring sitting at a table and it's like, how are you doing now? Uh, people get to play video games and bond over those kind of things and exchange information about each other and see if they vibe. So excited. Oh, yes. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. <laughs> Does that happen much? Oh, yes. And you get used to it. 
you do need a lot of patients working here as well. Um, sometimes you see do see people, you know, mistreating the consoles and you have to just be patient and explain to them, like, mm. you have to be careful with what we have here because it's not as easy replaced, you know, as uh, newer consoles in a sense. Because these things are finite and they will run out one day. But to be honest, like seeing just the enthusiasm and stuff like that, it just makes me happy. You know, they love the games and if that means they're going to be a bit more loud or anything like that, you know, it's totally fine. <laughs> okay, so fast forward four and a half months to the middle of July when I was starting work on this episode and things have changed. The world has changed dramatically and I wanted to find out how much of a toll COVID-19 has taken on this little video game museum on the west coast of Australia. So I arranged a Skype call with Liz and asked her to fill me in on the latest happenings. What is it? We closed down, if I get the exact date, around the 20th of March. I still have like my final work day, like dated in my notebook and then, you know, a whole bunch of nothing. We basically went in full lockdown. Like, I didn't have work, my colleagues didn't have work, my boss was at home, and this was very close to the day that we wanted to move location. So that kind of got postponed as well. The whole of Australia went into lockdown on March 20th. We got essentially stay-at-home orders. All non-essential services were shut down, social distancing was mandated, and international borders were closed to non-residents. Interstate and intrastate travel restrictions soon followed for much of the country. And such it remained until mid-May, when the restrictions began to ease slowly in most states. Um, we lost about 34% of our revenue now even uh, because of no tourism. And yeah, we basically reopened our doors only very recently uh, on the 19th of June. So we've been now open for exactly a month. And... Um, what is it? When we, uh, during that time, closer to opening time, we started shifting everything to the new location. And it was a lot of man hours, uh, a lot of volunteered man hours uh, to do that, uh, which was massive. But obviously, uh, we are now in the new location and it's running pretty well. They've had to cut their opening hours outside of school holidays from six to three days a week, just Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Because with no tourists, it just isn't worth it to be open on the weekdays. But they are open, and they are in the bigger space. So that's something. It's been running pretty well. A lot of people were already very keen to have parties, which is our biggest kind of revenue, obviously. The uh, Sometimes our full Saturdays are still fully booked out because people just want to have their parties there. But we are getting a fair amount of bookings and things like that. But obviously, it's not as much as it used to be. And luckily, though, the school holidays were a huge success. We just finished them. Uh, we were open seven days a week. And we basically had just... I, I worked four days a week on both those. And it was crazy. It was very, very, very busy. Um, basically, a constant influx of people all wanted to play games and obviously we do keep ourselves relatively to the social distancing standards and we clean things regularly especially controllers which swap hands constantly but also we have like kind of sanitation stations everywhere in the museum so people can just wipe their hands whenever they want and things like that 
And uh, yeah, it's been a huge success. It's also brought a bit of strain on some of our equipment again. After just uh, in one week, we had about three things break down, um, which was not necessarily wear and tear. It was more, I think, uh, more people not being very careful with the, with things, which is sad, which saddens me greatly to see these things break down. And I'm like, because <clears throat> um, some of them aren't that easy to get your hands on. But overall, it's been really, really busy. Not quite busy like before, but any busy is good busy for a business that relies on ticket sales and event bookings in the time of COVID. They're doing speed dating again and Pokemon play days, and these things are going great, especially now that they're in the bigger venue. But the specter of COVID still hangs over them. And I, I'd imagine that uh, during the lockdown, things were, were getting a bit, a bit scary, thinking about the, the future of whether you'd be able to keep keep working at the store personally and keep running it as a as a team yeah um even now we're still kind of being uh, threatened here and there there are some things going on behind the scenes that i only got informed about yesterday which i don't think i'm at liberty yet to discuss but there are still some the definitely some uh, i don't know if this is saying but some bears on the road still to figure out and see how we can overcome these things because you know um obviously northbridge in the city of perth has been suffering a lot under COVID. a lot of things have been closing down a lot of shops had to leave and that causes a lot of uh, property owners also to bump the rent and the lease on our museum has gone up a lot and that's kind of scary and it feels kind of like a betrayal in the sense that we've been there for five years and now they do this um but we're trying to figure it out, especially now that we just reopened. We want to obviously stay in the location. We got a new mural done and everything. So to leave that behind once again, that would be uh, that would be very scary. So yeah, it's definitely not done yet. Um, especially also hearing that the new flare-ups in Melbourne, and I, I really hope that you're staying safe uh, in your state. Uh, but I can imagine that everything is now kind of again in lockdown the way it was uh, in March. Yeah, we uh, it, it's a lot scarier now than it was then because at the time it was just all the cases just about were imports from people returning from overseas. And now there's community transmission. It's a, there, There's a large percentage of cases that they don't even know who uh, someone got it from. They're, they're, they're having trouble tracing where it's come from. So... So, like, beyond family and work groups, it's out in the wild. And so that makes it quite scary. And the lockdown this time has a, a very different vibe to it. People have a lot of anxiety now. So, uh, anyway, in, uh, in happier, happier news, uh, tell me about this, this new space and what you guys are doing with it. It's a lot bigger, right? Yes, uh, we definitely expand a lot. So we still have the museum and we still have a play area. Um, so that's still kind of the way it was. Um, the museum now, when you walk in, basically, you are greeted by the front desk still. But it's not as easy, let's say, to just run into the game area straight away. You are now almost forced to kind of have a look through the museum. And that's kind of what we're happy about. We want people to be exposed to this, this history 
I want we want kids, you know, to be able to have something catch their eye and just have a look, even if it's for a very short moment. Because I know it's super exciting when they see the consoles and they want to play games. Um, so we definitely have the museum. We've got a couple new pieces that we pulled out of storage that we added to the collection. They put special editions of a few consoles on display at the front of the store and made mini timelines of the PlayStation and Xbox. And it kind of pulls people in because they see it from the outside and they're like, hey, I used to have that. And then they come have a look inside. So it's luring people in to see that we've got like some cool consoles. Sometimes they think it's a store and that we sell them. But to know that they get to play them unlimitedly with just one ticket, uh, it is very tempting. And luckily, they still very much enjoy that. Um, as for the gaming area, we definitely added a couple new things as well. We now have a uh, band hero set up so people can play music. So we have the guitars with the bands. We have this wall set up in which we have the guitars hanging on the wall, kind of like mounted. And we also have now a shooting gallery, which was just duck hunts to begin with. But now we also have things like time crisis and uh, point, point blank and things like that on the PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 1. And we have the, luckily we already had these guns in storage. They were donated to us once upon a time. And being able to now finally use these pieces that have been like in a box for so long feels really exciting. So besides that, we still have our regular tables with all of the consoles we already had. And then we also have uh, our newest edition, which was right before lockdown, just got donated to us, which were two Dance Dance Revolution dancing pads metal ones, like really high quality metal dancing pads. We have our biggest TV set up with it in the corner. And now, you know, people are just, they, yeah, they're enamored by it, by the fact that they can just play as much as they want. Because again, these kind of things you can find in time zones and you have to put in like almost $5 to play a game on there. And then, you know, when you fail, you fail and you get kicked out. But in this case, you get to try as many times as you want. And people really like that, obviously. I once had a guest who told me he spent about $300 with his son in time zone and he was there for a couple hours. $300. (laughs) That's insane. (laughs) Obviously, they had an incredible time and they really enjoyed themselves. But then when they went to our place, they were like, oh, for just, you know, about $18, we managed to have just as much time and play as many games. What else is new is we now have, let's say, a proper seating area. We used to have just like the two little seats in the gift shop, but now we actually have a proper couch with a coffee table. And um, it's very popular with the parents. (laughs) Obviously, they just like to sit back, be on their phone, and as their kids go on and uh, have a good play. Uh, But I see still a lot of parents obviously joining in, showing off their their gaming skills to uh, the younger generation, which is really awesome. And in that same area, we also have a... uh, a type of bar set up. We are planning on getting our liquor license so we can pour drinks ourselves for events and parties like that. And uh, so we have a bar set up with a large fridge um, and that same area is also used for now hosting birthday parties. So it's a little bit more separate and more uh, specified. And it also keeps a little bit more of our games safe from food and pizza and drinks because we now more have a designated area to consume things. So... Having that space divided in this way feels really, really nice because it just feels like the rules kind of almost write themselves. You know, like parents can enforce it a lot easier. We can enforce it a lot easier. And that feels just really, really nice to have that going. But yeah, the the new space is definitely really, really good. Um, It feels 
not as cramped, uh, especially now after COVID, you know, feeling that it's less cramped is actually really, really nice as well. It, it felt almost like it was supposed to happen with the fact that we expanded ourselves so we're able to spread out more. And for me, it's a relief to know that not only do we, for now at least, still have a public venue where people can see these hundreds of artefacts of video game history and play games from different console generations, but also that nestled quietly away in a side street of a trendy district in the small city of Perth, Western Australia, there's a place of pure joy and nostalgia. A place that cherishes togetherness and inclusiveness through video games. The kind of place I think we need now more than ever. In a world united against a virus and yet simultaneously more divided than it's been in decades. A place that preserves the past, both in our shared memories and in actual unvarnished facts. To remind us that beneath the waves of nostalgia for the past, there's a rich, vibrant and chaotic history just waiting to be remembered too. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. To learn more about The Nostalgia Box, you can head to their website, thenostalgiabox.com.au. Follow them on Twitter at nostalgia underscore box. Or follow them on Instagram at nostalgiabox. My thanks, as always, to my wonderful supporters on Patreon for making this show possible. Especially to my producer-level backers, Rob Eberhardt, Seth Robinson, Wade Trigaskis, Simon Moss, Eric Zocker, Vivek Mohan. And you, too, can become a patron for as little as $1 a month by heading to patreon.com slash life and times of video games. Depending on your pledge tier, you can get interruption-free episodes, behind-the-scenes content, research notes, voting rights for upcoming episodes, and various other rewards. That's patreon.com slash life and times of video games. You can also support me through one-off donations, if you don't want to commit to anything, via paypal.me slash mossrc. I'll have links to those and to the Nostalgia Box in the show notes, which you can always find at my website, lifeandtimes.games. This was the first episode in Season 4. It'll be either six or seven episodes this season, each hopefully published two to three weeks after the last. Next time around, I'll be delving into the creation of a technological marvel from 1990 and its immense influence on its little genre. Until then, please remember, wear a mask, do your social distancing, stay home if you're sick, and take care of yourselves and each other. My name is Richard Moss, and this was the Life and Times of Video Games. I'll see ya. <laughs>